Again, my name is Kyle Lundquist. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, as I said, we're, we're diving into this new series as we study who the Holy Spirit, Spirit is and, and what he's up to in our life. Um, and I just want to say at the, at the outset that as I was studying this passage this week, I'm just mindful of how much I don't know. Um, this, is a, this is tough. It's a tough passage, and it's a complex topic, life, living life in the Spirit. Um, so if you feel like, there's a lot I don't know, and this is hard, um, I share that with you. I was just realizing this week that I, I've so often sort of viewed the Holy Spirit as a, as a sidekick God. I would never have said that or written that in a paper or anything like that, but that's sort of, that's sort of what was going on in my heart. And I was imagining, you can imagine if you were being robbed and then Batman shows up, right? And he's got his forearm on the bad guy and you're feeling pretty good because Batman's here. And then all of a sudden if Batman was like, his, his bat phone rings and he says, oh, I gotta go, but don't worry, Robin's coming. You'd feel like, Robin, he's like a child. And we feel like, I don't, I don't want a sidekick. I want the superhero. And I think that some of us feel like Jesus is the superhero and the Holy Spirit is the sidekick. But that's not true. The Holy Spirit is God. He's a person and he's God and he's with us. And so what we're going to talk about today is how is he involved in our life? What's he up to? My hope is that our whole church family, I was so blessed by our church family. I was talking with our elders. I was talking with Uche. I was reading a book that Ken wrote. And all these different voices were helping me. My hope is that not just when we're hearing sermons, but out in the courtyard, in our small groups, all over the place, that our conversations help each other learn and grow. Um, So let me pray for us, and then we'll dive in. God, we, yeah, we, we plead with you to help us to understand, and not just understand, but to actually Learn to, learn to live by the Spirit, to live life with and by the Spirit. Lord, would you particularize us today? Would you help us to be attentive to you? Would we pay attention to what your Spirit brings up during this time, Lord? And would we, would we respond today, when we sing and after, with gratitude, would we worship you, God? So be with us. Pray this in your name. Amen. So I want us to begin by thinking about, this happened last time. Can you hit the first slide and then it seemed like it was working. Um, I want us to talk about a, a really simple concept at the, at the beginning. And it's just this, it's that our desires dictate our actions or they do much to dictate our actions. Our desires shape and drive our actions. So the desires that we cultivate in our heart, they're gonna express themselves in actions. And you, you see that principle play out in James. In James 1.15, he's talking about sinful desires. He says, these desires give birth to sinful actions. So sinful desires, no surprise, give birth to sinful actions. And when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. So our desires dictate our actions. So our desires matter a lot. So what I want us to do is pause and um, we're going to look at a story that most of you are familiar with. It's a story of the Good Samaritan. And what we're going to do is look at a few of the characters and we're going to wonder what was going on in their heart. What sort of desires were at play? There's, there's three guys who walk by in the story. We're just going to look at two of them. And so the beginning of the story, um, there's a man who's been beaten and robbed and, and just left on the side of the road. Um, apparently he's, he's so hurt He's so, he's so hurt that he can't get up and help himself. So he needs help. So as um, the audience 
our question is, who's going to help this guy? Um, and then something good happens. At least it seems good because a priest shows up and priests are spiritual people. So you would assume that this priest would see this guy and help him. But instead what the story says is it sees, he sees the guy and he, he wants no part in helping. And so if we, were, if we were to just pause this priest right here, and if we had a, a soul x-ray and we could look at what was going on inside of our, his heart, I wonder if it would be something like this. If there would have been conflict Right? He's a priest. He knows the law. He knows what Yahweh says he should do. And there may have been a desire to do the selfless thing and to help him. But what we know is some other desire wins. And we're speculating about what it is exactly. But let's just say there's a selfish desire that wins. Maybe he looks at this guy and thinks, I don't want to help that guy. I'm a priest. I have important priestly things to do. People are depending on me. I have no idea who that is. And that would take my time. That would take my money. He might spend my money on drugs. I have no idea what he's going to do. He might be a bad guy. Or the bad guys who beat him up might come for me. I don't want to help him. And so his sinful desire leads to sinful actions, and he just goes on his way. And then there's another man who shows up. And this guy is a Samaritan. And when the Samaritan shows up, the audience would have been that hopeful because Jewish people thought Samaritans were not very spiritual. So he probably doesn't have spiritual desires in his heart. And yet, when the Samaritan sees the man who's hurting, he moves toward him and he's compassionate and he wants to help him. And so if we're to pause this man and look into his heart, we may see conflict still. Right? He maybe knew how the Jews looked at the Samaritans and felt like, I don't want to help them. And he may have felt all the same selfish desires. That's going to cost me time and money and all sorts of things. But what we know is that some other desire won, a good desire, a selfless desire, a godly desire, because he actually goes and he helps the man. And he spends his time and his money to, to care for him. And he picks him up and they go on their way. And so we're speculating a bit about what exactly was going on in their hearts. But we know that there were some desires that were competing. And we get this because we experience this all the time. We experience this internal conflict of our desires. Right? We experience this in our home with our children or with our spouse or with whoever, where we feel like that person is really making me angry right now. And we know, we feel the godly desire that I should be patient and forgiving and loving. But we feel some other desires that are less godly to lash out, to control, to use our words, to cut them down. You feel this conflict when there's that person who comes along and they don't do anything wrong, but they just annoy you. They just kind of drive you crazy. And you feel the godly desire that I should love this person and include them. But there's another desire, a sinful desire that just says, I want nothing to do with you because you just kind of drive me crazy. Or the person, maybe it's at school or work or whoever, who's just like a bulldozer. They always know the right answer. They can do everything. They, they don't want to listen to you. Right? It just feels like they're trying to squish you. And I know that sometimes my response is not the godly desire to be patient and enduring. My desire is, I'll crush you. If you want to try to crush me, you want to try to show that you're smarter than me, I'll go higher and I'll try to come down on you. Right? We feel this conflict. Sometimes it feels like civil war inside of us. And so the question I want us to ask today is to think about how does the Spirit, how does the Holy Spirit help us grow and overcome our sinful desires, right? We're all aware that the conflict exists. 
And the question is, is there hope? And can the Spirit really help me to grow and overcome those sinful desires? And so we're going to look at Paul's words in Galatians. But before we dive into Galatians chapter 5, I just want us to have sort of a quick understanding of what's going on in Galatians broadly. What's the context? And what we're going to do is we're going to look at Galatians through the lens of desire. Um, And so we'll ask a question. What desire should drive our life? Um, Let's assume that's one of the questions Paul is trying to answer in Galatians. And so what Paul does in the first four chapters is over and over and over and over and over again, he says something very simple. He says, you do not earn grace. You cannot, and you don't have to, because Jesus has given it freely. You do not earn grace. And what he says actually is that if you try to orient your life around the desire to earn God's grace, you actually move away from Jesus, not towards him. Because what you're saying is, I don't need Jesus. I can be good enough on my own. But what Paul says is that, well, then one day you're going to stand before God and he will judge you based on what you did. And you won't have done enough. And so he says that you're, you're cut off from Christ. Christ won't count for you if you try to base your life on this desire to earn God's love and grace. So he's saying, don't do that. Don't orient your life on the desire to earn. And we feel that. It's, feel, it's very easy to orient our life around trying to earn God's love and to earn his grace. But Paul's reminding us, don't do that. And so Paul knows how human, the human mind works, and he knows that once we hear that grace is free, there's a question that comes up. And we probably all know we're not supposed to ask it aloud, but we might wonder about it. And it's the question, well, if grace is free, then can I just sin? Can I just sin as much as I want? And if you look at the verses right before our passage, if you look at, uh, look at verse 13, we're going to be in 16, but look at verse 13. He says, for you are called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom, your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. And so Paul is also going to say, don't orient your life around the desire to earn, but also don't orient your life around the desire to sin. That also leads to death. In our passage today, he's going to say, after he lists all these sinful actions, he's going to say, um, if you do these things, and when he says do, he's talking about habitual doing, like making your life about these things, you also are moving away from Christ. And so both of these desires lead us away from Jesus. And so the final question is, well, then what, what desires do I respond to? What desires should drive my life? If it's not the desire to earn and it's not the desire to sin, what desires should drive my life? And he says, it's the desires of the spirit. And so look at verse 16. That's where we'll pick up. Galatians 5, 16, he says, but I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing things you want to do. And so what Paul is doing is he's saying there's this middle path and it's the narrow way that Jesus has called us to walk. And we don't allow our life to be driven by legalism and a desire to earn God's grace. And we also don't allow our life to be driven by license and freely sinning. And instead we allow our life to be driven by the desires of the spirit. And he's introducing that um, in verse 16, and he's, he's especially going to focus on the conflict between these sinful desires and the desires of the Spirit. So in that first verse, when he says, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gr- gratify the desires of the flesh, and then goes on to talk about how these desires compete with each other, we see a conflict and a command. 
And first, we're going to look at this conflict. Um, Paul describes the internal conflict that we've already talked about. And he describes it as the desires of the flesh waging war against the desires of the spirit. And when he uses flesh, that's not a word we use very much. We just think of skin and, and things like that. But that's, that's not what he's talking about here. Um, sometimes the Bible uses flesh neutrally, but often it uses it negatively. And it means it's our tendency towards sin. It's our self-reliant and selfish and sinful propensity. And so when he talks about desires of the flesh, we can think of it like our sinful and selfish desires. And he contrasts that with the desires of the spirit. And what he says is that both of those desires bear fruit. And so the desires of the flesh, verse 19, he says, now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so what he's saying is when we allow sinful desires to live in our heart and respond to them, it leads to sinful actions. Notice he, he, he says that list isn't exhaustive. Things like these is what he says at the end. And what he's pointing out is that our sinful desires lead to an empty, broken life. And that's because sin will always promise you life and give you death. Always. It will feign and offer pleasure and excitement and control and satisfaction and all sorts of things. It will promise you life, but it will be poison to your soul. And when we pause and think, we see it. Because the greedy person has been promised satisfaction. Greed promises satisfaction, and yet the greedy person is actually endlessly unsatisfied because they can never get enough. Lust promises excitement and pleasure, and yet it leaves us empty. It robs us. When we withhold forgiveness and we become angry, it promises control. And yet what happens is we're actually out of control because bitterness turns inward and erodes the good things in our soul. And so sin is poison. And Paul's just saying, when we respond to sinful desires, even though it promises life, it's going to lead to death, always. And on the contrary, when we respond to the desires of the Spirit, it leads to a meaningful life, flourishing. These are the kinds of things we long for. I also don't think that this list is intended to be exhaustive. Verse 22, he says, but the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. We could think of other things that are fruit of the spirit, like generosity. He says, against these, these things, there is no law. And so Paul's just contrasting these two things. And, and notice, we, we're really quick to focus on the fruit. We focus on like, man, I really want that joy. I want that peace. But notice, Paul's emphasis is not on the fruit his focus is on the spirit. His focus is on desires. And so that's where we're going to focus. We're not going to dive into what exactly are all these fruit, what is love, what is joy, because that's not his point. His point is focus on the spirit, focus on desires, and then the fruit just comes. We don't bear fruit because we want it, and we don't bear fruit because we will it. We bear fruit because we walk with the spirit, and that's different. And so that's his focus. So that's our focus. But when we talk about what is the spirit doing to help me grow and overcome sinful desires, the first thing we see here, thank you for Uche helped me to think through this. The Holy Spirit, this is amazing. The Holy Spirit has started a war where there was no war. 
And what I mean by that is now there's a conflict inside of us. There's a conflict between my sinful desires and the desires of the spirit. But that war didn't always exist. What Paul says elsewhere is that there was a time where sin just reigned in your body. It was the king, right? And we may have lived moral lives, but we weren't worshiping God. And sin was the ruler. But when we became a Christian and we became a new creation, one of the things that the spirit does is plants these new desires inside of you. He's done that, right? Godly desires aren't inside of me because I'm awesome. It's because God is kind and he's put them there. Now I need to partner with him to nurture those, but they're there because of him. And so there is now a war inside your soul and that's because the spirit has planted godly desires in you. And what this means is we should lament the fact that there are sinful desires in us. But sometimes we become overwhelmed and discouraged to the point where we just kind of give up. But there's also something, when we feel that conflict, there's something to rejoice in because it means that the spirit has done something in you. He's planted these new desires. There's a war now and sin doesn't just get to trample all over you. That's amazing. That's new life. And one of the things that we can uh, learn from today is to begin to praise God. When we feel the conflict to not only despair, we shouldn't despair, but to rejoice that there's this conflict because the spirit has sparked this new war. Now he's the general sort of leading the charge and our job is to partner with him. And I just want to pause to talk about what does it look like for the spirit to, to put these desires in us? And I want to suggest that Sometimes it feels big and disruptive when the spirit moves and puts those godly desires in us. And sometimes it feels very subtle and both matter. And we should learn to build categories in our brain to count both. So when we talk about the subtle work, that's, that could be long growth or growth over a long period of time. So when I was in high school, I played sports and I would get angry. Right? I would get angry at my teammates. I would get angry at the umpire. I get angry at the soccer ball. I'll get angry at whatever because I was, I was just angry and I would, I, would, I would blame my teammates or it was the umpire or the ref's fault or whatever, right? And there's this sort of sinful competitiveness. Not all competition is sinful, but it was sinful the way it was coming out in me. <laughs> and it was, it was just sort of living there. And now 13 years later, I still have to watch that when I go play soccer. I'm still prone at times to get angry or to lash out at somebody, but it's different. Because over the last 13 years, the spirit has slowly and subtly refined my character. That's the work of the spirit. And we need to know that, right? In John 14 and 16, when Jesus is describing the work of the spirit, he talks about really basic things like conviction of sin. When you feel convicted, that's the spirit. Praise God. It says that the spirit will remind you of Jesus' teaching. When you remember Jesus' teaching, that's the work of the spirit. And slowly and subtly, he's refining your character. So you become a different kind of person. And then the other things that he does are these sort of bigger disruptive things. And those may be more rare. A, a story to sort of try to illustrate both these. Um, a few months ago, I was driving to church. I live in Norwalk. I'm in a neighborhood and I'm pulling out onto Imperial. So I'm waiting at a stoplight. And I have to get to church. I'm in charge of the event that's happening. So I got to get there on time. And I need to swing by the store beforehand to get food and things like that. And you never really know how long it's going to take to be at the store. So I think I'm on time, but I'm not totally sure. So I'm sitting there and then I look to my right and there's a woman walking down the street and she looks um, disheveled and a little bit disoriented. As she gets closer, I can see that she looks distressed. Um, she's, not, she's not bleeding, but there's like an abrasion on her cheek. It looks like she's been crying. 
And so she walks up to my car and knocks on the window. So I roll the window down, and I, I don't know exactly what I said, something like, hey, who are you, or how, how are you, or something. Um, and, I, and, and she responded and asked me, ultimately, can you take me to the emergency room? She didn't share what was going on. Um, and I felt the conflict. I felt my compassion for her. I want to help her. I, I feel concerned for her. But I also felt other desires. I felt like, I got to be on time. Like, maybe like that priest. I got somewhere to be. I'm in charge of this thing. I got to be there. Um, I feel like I don't really know who you are or what's going on with this situation. And so I just feel a little uncertain. And, and so there's a desire to help and there's a desire to not help. And both are present. And there's a car behind me and the light turns green and I look at her and it's just all in a split second. And I say, I'm sorry, I have to go. And I drive off. Hang a left. I drive a couple of blocks down Imperial and I'm at a stoplight. And then as I'm sitting at the stoplight, I am just pierced with the conviction that I need to go back to help this woman. Um, and so I did. So I went back and I picked her up and I took her to the ER. Um, and that's not because I'm awesome. The spirit had to disrupt me and do something big because I was sort of unwilling. And so that may be what the spirit waging war against sin looks like at times. But some of you in that same situation, when she knocked on the window, you would have realized, I have, I have five or 10 minutes, there's an ER around the corner, and you would have just naturally responded and said, yes, I will help you. And that's the spirit also, because he has refined your character in maybe a way that mine is not yet refined, so that you would just naturally say, yes, I, I, I can help you and I should. And both of those are the work of the spirit, waging war against our sin. And so here's my question for you, two of them. My first question is, are you pretending like there is no war? Paul's making it really clear that there is an internal conflict. There is a war inside of our soul. And one of the dangers as Christians is that we pretend like there's not. We pretend like I'm not prone to sin, like I don't have sin, like I'm not tempted to sin. And when we do that, we actually give sinful desires more power. You can imagine a king in a kingdom, and imagine if there was an enemy that came to the, to the walls, and they're setting up shop to lay waste to this city. Right? They've got their catapults and they're sending burning things over and people are climbing the walls. And imagine if the king inside the castle is sitting there and he's just adamant. There's not a war happening. What are you guys talking about? There's no war. His kingdom will be ruined because he's pretending like it's not happening when it is. Similarly, if we pretend like there's no war inside of us, we give power to sin. And so one of the things that we maybe need to move towards is just admitting and confessing and talking more freely about the fact that there are sinful desires in our soul. The other question I want to ask you is, are you asleep to this war? And by that, I mean, are you just, are you sort of spiritually disengaged? That you wake up and, it, and you don't live like there's any conflict inside. You just kind of, I'm saved and that's what God asked of me. And yet, we're called to be saved and we're also called to be sanctified and to continue journeying. And so do you need to wake up and engage afresh in your journey with God? So those may be some things to think about. And so that's what we see when we look at the conflict, that the spirit has sparked this war and we rejoice in that. And then we move on and we hear this command, right? So right at the beginning of verse 16, he says, walk by the spirit. Um, later in verse 18, he says, it's not a command. He says, you are led by the Spirit. Um, and then in verse 25, 
He says, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. So the command is to be led by, to walk by the Spirit, to keep in step with the Spirit. And if you're like me, you hear those commands and you feel like, that's kind of vague. Walk by the Spirit? Like, what do you want me to do? Um, And I was realizing this week that so many of God's commands, they're difficult to do but they're not necessarily difficult to understand, right? So when God says to love your enemies, I don't pause and sit around and and think like, what's an enemy? (laughs) I I generally understand what the command means. It's just hard to do. Or when God commands us to be generous, I don't pause and think, so what does he mean by generous? What does that word mean? I know what that means. It's just hard to do. But when he tells me to walk by the spirit, I actually feel like I'm not sure what you're asking me to do. What do you, what do you want me to do? And I think one of the things Paul is doing is he's trying to capture a complex relational reality. The spirit is a person who we relate to and who's relating to us. And he's trying to capture something complex. And so you can imagine if um, maybe let's imagine you have no friends, which is sad. And you come to me, you have no friends and you come to me and you ask me, what does it mean to love my friend? Does it, like, should I listen to them? And I would say, oh yeah, you, you definitely have to listen to them, but it's more than that. And you might say, well, okay, so it's listening. What if I listen and I encourage them? And I would say, yes, yes, you have to listen and you have to encourage, but it's more than that. And you might respond like, well, can you just give me a list? Just give me like the five things I have to do to be a loving friend and I'll go do it. And I would respond and say, no, I can't do that. I can't just bullet point and list what it means to love your friend. It's too broad and complex. It's too multifaceted. It's too relational. And I think something like that is going on. Paul is talking about a relational, a relationship where we're partnering with God's spirit. And so he doesn't just give us three bullet points. He gives us a picture, walk by the spirit. And the picture is helpful. Um, he says, uh, it's, it's, that verb is continuous and it's present. So he's saying we presently and will continually walk by the spirit. This is the rest of our life. And so notice how, notice how much we want a silver bullet in our spiritual life. We just want to know, tell me the two things to do and I'll do it. And it's just not how it works. Instead, it's this ongoing adventure where you learn to live with God. So all that being said, it's complex. And yet I think Paul is saying something that's actually and practically helpful. And there's concrete stuff here. So look at verse 24. He says, and those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And so when we talk about walking by the spirit or keeping in step with the spirit, it probably means a lot. But one thing it means, and I think one thing he's getting at in this passage is that the spirit's desires begin to dictate our actions. So instead of my own desires, my sinful desires dictating my action, the spirit's desires begin to dictate my action. And then he says, there's sort of two things that happen. So in that verse I just read, he says, we have crucified our sinful desires. And he says it past tense, like it's done. And as Christians, we always live in this tension of things that are already, but not yet. Things that have begun, but aren't yet finished. So do we live in God's kingdom? Yes, but we won't experience the fullness of that till later. Do we live with the presence of God now? Yes, but we'll experience the fullness of that later. Have I crucified my sinful desires? Yes, in one sense, I left all of that behind when I chose to follow Jesus. And yet Paul has already said that those desires are still alive and well. But his point is Christians are the kind of people we respond in a particular way to sinful desires. 
We kill him. We crucify him. It's a violent opposition to our sinful desires. And what he's telling us is to become unresponsive to your sinful desires. So to illustrate that, um, I had a cat named Patch when I was in high school. I really like Patch. Um, and he was, he, I know a lot of you aren't cat people, but I like Patch, okay? Um, and so I would be responsive to my cat at times. So I would be reading my book and he would try to like get in front of my book so he would get all the attention. So then I'd pet him, right? I'm responding to him. Or he used to, we would build puzzles and he would go on the puzzle and then stretch on it. I don't know why, maybe it felt good. And he would break our puzzles. It's kind of funny. So we would respond to his actions. Um, and then Patch died. It's okay. I'm okay. I'm not, I'm not that attached to my pets. Um, Patch died and I was no longer responsive to Patch. Right? None of my life responded to him, was oriented around him or anything like that because he was dead. What Paul is saying is kill your sinful desires and treat them like they're dead. You become unresponsive to it so that you can become responsive to something else. You can become responsive to the desires of the spirit. And so that's the second thing he says. He says in verse 25, if we live by the spirit and we do, it's sort of rhetorical, let us keep in step with the spirit. When he talks about keeping in step, that's like staying in sync with, just walking with. Uh, Kelly and I were trying to, we were walking downstairs yesterday um, and, and we were walking out of step. Like my arm wanted to swing forward, but her arm wanted to swing backwards and our legs were out of step. And so we're kind of like bumbling around for a second, but then just naturally what we do is we just get in step. We, we mirror our steps together so we can walk together. And that's what he's saying to do is begin to mirror and walk with the spirit. And so here's the picture that I think he's painting. One, it's that we become increasingly unresponsive to our sinful desires and increasingly responsive to, to these godly desires. And what that looks like in real life is you wake up and all throughout your day, you will bump into moments where you have two choices, where you will feel the desires of the sin, your, the, the desires of the flesh, these sinful desires, and you'll feel these godly desires. And in those moments, we crucify, we kill, we reject our sinful desires and we try to respond to God's spirit. So maybe 10 minutes into your day, there's a frustrating situation that happens and you just wanna lash out at somebody and you notice there's my sinful desire to lash out, to be unkind. And in prayer, we say, God, I know there's this godly desire to be kind. I wanna go that way. And then 20 minutes later, you might bump into the same desire. And again, we say, okay, Lord, I wanna leave this sinful desire on the cross. I wanna be dead to that. I wanna go where you want me to go. And at some point, we might actually choose sin. We might respond poorly. And in that moment, we feel something that's disjointed, like when Kelly and I were walking out of step, and we say, nope, Father, that's not the way I want to go. I want to leave that. And all through our day, we're invited to be actively engaged with God's Spirit, moment by moment, as we're presented with all these different situations, trying to learn to reject these sinful desires and respond to these godly desires. And so it becomes something like a dance with God's Spirit. He's leading, and we follow. This, this may surprise some of you. Some of you will be devastated by this. I'm not a great dancer. I'm just not. Um, like when, when we're at a wedding, when Kelly and I are at a wedding and the slow song comes on, I don't really know how to lead or follow. So what I do is I just kind of sway, right? But most of you do that too. So 
right? I don't, I just, I'm not a great dancer. But I remember I was watching, uh, Kelly and I went and watched Beauty and the Beast, the new one they made a year ago. And they're like dancing. Or I was watching Anna was dancing yesterday at Biola Youth Theater. And it's like, wow, they can really dance. They know what they're doing. And sometimes there's two people dancing together and one person's leading and one person's following. And what happens when I dance sometimes is, I, I'm only swaying, so it's not that hard, but I sway left when I was supposed to sway right. And in that moment, you can feel something that's disjointed. Something's out of sync. And in that moment, there's a, oh, I'm going the wrong way. I need to come back this way. And that's what our life walking with the Spirit is like. We live our life, and we're going to notice moments, I'm I'm out of step right here. I responded sinfully. That's not what I want. I want to crucify that. I want to leave that. Instead, I want to go back this way. So it's not just vague, a vague picture. There's an actual journey day by day that we get to embark on with God's spirit. And we have to, because I'm convinced that the only way we can follow Jesus is by walking by the spirit. Jesus has laid a path out for us to walk, but we can't walk it unless we walk by the power of the spirit. And we're called to crucify those desires. And what will happen is that we will try to crucify desires. You'll hear a sermon and you're motivated. So you're in here nailing some sinful desire up there. And then two days later, we take it back down. But at some point, the spirit convicts us and we put it back up. Or sometimes we'll feel like, okay, I want to leave these sinful desires. I want nothing to do with them. And then we turn around and ah, there it is again. The same desire that we just tried to put up on the cross and leave, it's still right here. Over and over and over again. Day after day, breath after breath. This is the journey of the Christian life. Is learning to be responsive to these godly desires and unresponsive to the sinful ones. And I think that's really exciting. I think it's exciting for two reasons. One, it means that growth is actually possible. You can grow. You could be angry. You could notice that your heart is materialistic. You could be overindulgent. You could be unkind. You could be impatient. You could be any number of things, and we are. But what this passage says is that growth can actually and really happen as we learn to walk with the Spirit. So some of us here are totally just beaten down and discouraged because there's some sin that has just afflicted us for so long and we feel hopeless. And I get that. I really do. And I just want to remind you as we read this passage that not a sidekick God, but God, very God, lives inside of you to empower you and you can grow. You really can. And the other thing that I love about this passage is it means that the Christian life It's not just this thing where we believe some stuff and we're done. It's not something where we just come sit in a pew every so often. It's every single day we get to go on an adventure to learn how to live life with God's spirit. That sounds meaningful and exciting to me. If Christianity is just, I believe a few things and that's it, there's no life in that. But if it's a life where God is with me and he's helping me grow and moment by moment I have to walk with him, there's something exciting about that. And that's the journey we're invited on. And so what I want to do to end is to look at, just look at a handful of things that could help or hinder us from walking with the Spirit and, and learning to be responsive to the Spirit. So there's just four things. Think of this as sort of like a, a diagnostic or, or a, a spiritual checkup where we're just going to sit with God and say, Lord, in light of this reality, how could I learn to walk with you? How could I learn to walk with you? And just pay attention to what comes up in your heart. What I'd love is if each of us, if there's one, there's four, there'll be four questions that we'll kind of look at. 
If there's just one that maybe you latch onto and say, I want to think about that. And so the first is this idea of attention. And I want you to think about, are you a distracted person? Or are you an attentive person? Are you attentive to God's spirit throughout your day? Or are you just kind of living the distracted life that is full of entertainment, full of maybe good things like people and school and work, but leaves no room for God? What are you most focused on? And how could you cultivate space for God's spirit? Just to, to, to point out how distracted we are, um, probably last year, I guess it was actually, I, I wanted to look at my phone less. So I deleted all my social media apps, Facebook, everything, d- deleted it. Um, but then what I did was I, I, I still looked at my phone a lot. I was just reading a news app and I don't even care about the news that much, but I was just reading this news app. And so then I decided, well, I'll delete this news app and I delete the news app. And then I started looking at eBay. I have an eBay app and I would just go on and scroll through eBay. And I know that if I delete the eBay app, I'll go look at the weather app or something. Because the issue, the issue isn't the app. The issue is my heart is prone to distraction. My heart loves to be entertained. My heart loves input. My heart doesn't always love silence. My heart doesn't always love to pause and say, what's the sinful stuff inside of me? And so we could be so distracted that we don't leave room to notice and hear from God. So think about that. You can think about pace. There's a guy named Dallas Willard, and um, one time somebody asked him to describe Jesus in a word, and he used the word unhurried. Um, You could use lots of different words to describe Jesus, but um, what he went on to talk about is, is noticing that Jesus is so grounded in who he is and so confident in what God has called him to do that he's not frenetically worried about everything or everyone He's focused on doing what God has asked him to do. And so what that means is, you probably know this story, where an important person has come to Jesus and said, can you heal my son? And Jesus says, yeah, I can do that. And he's following him when a nobody, a woman that nobody else would pay attention to, touches him. He notices it and he pauses. He's unhurried. And so when we talk about being unhurried, that doesn't just mean the external, right? Some of us, our lives are just too busy with a sheer amount of, Stuff, the volume of stuff is just, it's too much. And there's not space to be focused on the Lord. But we could also be hurried in our interior life. We could be preoccupied constantly with the opinion and approval of others, with anxiety, with any number of things. And there's an invitation, I think, in this passage to be unhurried, to live a full life, a full life, but to be unhurried so that in each moment, I can pay attention to those desires that are competing inside of me. You know, I could, I could hold up these notes and some people in the front row, if they have good eyes, they could read them. But if they were driving 90 miles an hour down the five, they could never read these. Um, and so if our, our pace is just so fast, it's going to be hard to pay attention to God. The next thing we could think about is what's your posture towards the spirit? And I'm just going to suggest three. Um, I'm going to suggest that one posture we could take is we could be willless, right? And this is the person who just kind of sits and is either spiritually disengaged and just tuned out, or it could be a person who's saying, I just kind of let go and let God, and if God wants me to grow, he'll zap me. But what we've learned is that while growth can't happen apart from the spirit, you have a role. And so are you disengaged? And maybe there's an invitation to, to, to learn what it means to partner with the spirit. 
Or maybe you're willful. You're not willless, you're willful. And that's probably actually more of us is that we are self-reliant in our spiritual life, that we want to grow and we're gonna figure out how to grow. And so we will white knuckle our growth. I'll try real hard. I will be the best walker in the spirit that there is. And we have to learn this complex sort of role of, I'm gonna be intentional, but what I'm gonna be intentional to do is be dependent. And that's, that's different and that's hard because self-reliance just doesn't work. And what I wanna suggest is that we would adopt the posture of being willing. And, and by that, I mean that we would, we, we would cooperate, we would partner with the spirit. When, when Jesus is talking about the spirit in John to Nicodemus, he says the spirit is like wind, he goes where he wants to go, and we wanna be willing and say, I wanna go where you wanna go. I wanna be who you want me to be. Are you willing? And lastly, we began by talking about desires. We'll end by talking about desires. Um, So let me ask you, what are the desires that drive your life? What do you want most and what do you chase? Is it the things of God? Or is it comfort? Or is it fun? Or is it just friendships? Many of us maybe know that there are sinful things that we shouldn't orient our life around. But what we're prone to do is take neutral things or good things and make them the best thing and elevate them above God. Have you done that? Have you taken good gifts and elevated them above the giver? And so we're gonna sing in a moment. We're gonna sing two songs that um, we chose intentionally. Um, we're gonna sing what a beautiful name, and we've done this before. There's, there's a line in this song that says, you have no rival. And so as we talk about desire and we talk about this internal conflict, as we sing this song, I wanna encourage you, as we sing that line specifically, Let that be a prayer that we're saying, God, in this moment, I want to declare that you have no rival. The reality is that you do. I've allowed there to be rivals in here. But in this moment, I want to crucify all those. I want to kill all those. I want to leave them because you have no rival. I don't want my life to be driven and oriented around you. And we're going to sing another song that I don't remember the name to. Um, But but the lyrics, just listen to a few of these lyrics. it says, when you move, you move us to tears. When, when you fall, we fall on our feet. Fall at your feet. And I, whenever we sing that, I off, I'm always struck like, that's not happening. I'm not moved to tears. I'm not falling. And that may be fine that those specific things aren't happening. But what the song is saying is that you animate us and we respond to you. And so as we worship, I, I, I want to encourage you to just continue to be mindful of what is God's spirit bringing up. And then as we sing this song about the spirit being the one who changes us and we respond to him, do it. We have a chance now as we worship to pay attention to God's spirit and to worship him with joy because he started a conflict where there was no conflict and to worship him because he's leading us and to praise him. And let's be responsive to him. And responding could look like standing and lifting your hands. Responding could also look like sitting quietly so you can talk to him. And all of that is good. God, we we recognize that we cannot follow Jesus unless we learn to walk by the Spirit. We're so grateful that the Spirit is in us. We're so grateful that the Spirit has sparked a war where there was no war. And Lord, I pray that for those who are really discouraged today, that as we sing, you would breathe hope into their life. For those of us who have been spiritually disengaged or sort of asleep in our journey, that you would wake us up today and that we would re-engage with you. Lord, if there's specific sin that we need to give up, would you help us to relinquish that today, even if it's just in prayer? And so would we 
while we're here? Would we begin to talk to you and relate to you? Would we sing to you? Would we pray to you? We pray this in your name. Amen.